Blog Talk Radio. Luther Vandross and your tribute podcast. Tell me that you love me 
but the thing that we, we, we took is you put the music next to it. So you had great, um, great amazing artists like Spoonie G, The Treacherous Three, Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five, Curtis Blow, the Run DMCs of the world who were emerging, the LO Cool J's. And I was blessed to be able to DJ with a group called the Beastie Boys for a year and actually write a song on um, Raising Hell, Run DMC's third multi-platinum album called Proud to be Black. So, yeah, we kind of knew what we were doing. So when I hooked up with Ed Lover in 89 to uh, co-host on Yo! TV Raps, I've been pretty seasoned as far as being as far as a, a broadcaster, as far as an artist, as far as a DJ, and I was very proud of what was going on. So this was just like a we were actually just knocking down that door that MTV was letting us walk through. So we were blessed with Peter Darty and Ted Demi giving us those opportunities. I mean, it's a phenomenal story, and I know uh, we were just talking before the show started that people, you're writing a book about your experience that people could find out more about this. So how could people get the book about your experience on UMTV Rap? I understand it's just the first couple of years that you're chronicling. Well, the book the book comes out later this year. It's called The Dr. Dre Episodes, 1989 to 1995, which chronicles my life on MTV. And if you understood MTV at that time, we were pretty much being the uh, launch case of will they support this music, you know, visually. Uh, Fab Five Freddy was the original host of the weekend version of Yo! MTV Raps, and it was Run DMC who actually did the pilot along with the great um, Jam Master J at the Nassau Coliseum <clears throat> at the Def Jam tour show. When we were asked to be a part of it, you got to go to the book. So we'll let you know more about the book as we go along because I have a feeling you and I will be talking a long time as we, you know, continue this legacy and this wonderful life of Luther Vandross. I love it. I, I would love that. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Luther and your shared experience because both of you were living with di- are living with diabetes. Luther had type 2 diabetes. And you both had these phenomenal careers and a lot of demands put on you, which sometimes kind of pushes diabetes to the sign or even the warning sign. Your own story of uh, your experience living with diabetes kind of, kind of goes back to about... 2008. Can you tell us how uh, you first found out your what happened that led to your initial diagnosis of type 2 diabetes? Well, as everyone knows, when you have kids, you yell and scream at them and say, don't walk around the house without your shoes on. Make sure you have your shoes on. So one day I thought I was going to be clever, and I was waking my daughter up to go to school, so I decided to walk up the stairs. Guess what? Without my flip-flops, without my shoes, whatever you want to call it, and I stepped on what's called a carpet tack. And it uh, cut my big toe, and when I when I saw it, I was like, oh, man, how did I do this? And I realized I must have stepped on this carpet tack because we just removed the carpets, getting ready to put new carpets down. And um, I thought I cared for it properly with some Neosporin and putting the right bandage on it, and it would go away. But instead, I got an infection behind what you thought was healing. And in doing that, and I went to the doctor, and I started getting a fever and uh, after a long period of time, my sister took me to the hospital only to find out that I was definitely uh, borderline diabetic and I had to uh, eventually have my uh, big toe removed. And that was exactly how the ball got started. And then you start to, you know, do what you call um, uh, depression, dilemma, anxiety. But I always felt that that's not going to help anything. What you got to do is face it head on and figure, figure out how to fix that situation. And because of my behavior, and because of what I was doing for a living, like you said, when you put the pressures on uh, living at the time, 
you fail to sit there. As long as you can get up and move your two feet forward, you figure I'm healthy, I can keep going, I can keep going. And that's why I stress we really have to make sure that we uh, pay attention to our health because without our health, there's nothing that you, you're going to have. It just becomes a zero. So my, my tale is a cautionary tale, but it's also a tale of uh, being forward-thinking, uh, also a tale of taking control of your life, and that's why I developed the health and wellness revolution as far as to get people to understand that uh, we have to take back our homeostasis. We have to take back our humanity. And it's very important because the thing we deal with with this event that goes under my Dr. Dre Victory Foundation is that we want to deal with uh, nutrition and fitness. We want to deal with climate change. We want to deal with homelessness. We want to deal with economic disparity. We want to deal with um, uh, bringing the cost of living down so that the world we can exist. And also with right now we're dealing with this new virus that's going around the world. We don't want to panic people. We want to make people more aware. And that's the biggest thing that I was missing when I was going through this long research process to start turning my illness into a wellness and making myself learn there's more than just the pharmaceutical way. There's a lot of things in holistic. Our goal is to put these options on the table, create a large coalition of people from different factions that have all different solutions to to how to deal with uh, diabetes and present it to the world that are here. Here's solutions. Here's things you put on the table. If you have a problem, you have a, a large consulting group that we can put together and people can reach out, and then you can actually find better ways to manage and then maybe find a better way to actually solve the problem and not only just reverse this thing, but we can also help eliminate that. And that first starts with what we put in our, in our gums. And I, I've also uh, gone to a very plant-life plant life, um, uh, diet, however you want to, want to say it like that. And I also was blessed with after a long, many years of researching and discussing, uh, I found a um, book and I found another young man who helped put me on a path. And a lot of people I walked, I went to and asked for their help. Uh, they all said, yeah, Dr. Trey, oh, my God, we got to help you. And, oh. and everybody always felt this like semi-pity for me. I said, pity's not going to help this. Information, growth, and participation will help find a solution. Find I mean, one way. of the things that hit me with um, Luther the stroke was I didn't even, I had no uh, knowledge prior to the fact that stroke was linked to diabetes. And I feel like part of your story is also about vision loss, which is something that I think a lot of people don't realize how vision loss is linked to diabetes. So tell us a little bit about this new journey you're on now where you're, um, because you've been so vocal about vision loss, your vision loss related to the diabetes. I want, I want to help uh, raise awareness for those two things for our listeners tonight. Thank you. Simple and plain. Uh, when I was diagnosed with being a type 2 diabetic, um, what happens is they, they tell you all the time you should go to an optometrist to get your eyes checked all the time because you have a very strong possibility of losing your eyesight to the disease. And that's pretty much what happened to me because I got a, um, my vision started to get a little fuzzy, and once I learned, I had to took the keys down and stop driving. And I went to uh, a doctor and I started having laser surgery. And they said, well, we're going to try retinopathy with you to reattach your retinas so that you may not lose your vision, but it's a 50-50 chance. And in that 50-50 chance, um, I developed what you call scar tissue alongside of it. So I get what you call fluttering in and out of vision where I see shapes, I see heat signatures, and sometimes my sight comes back where it's very clear. It's like, wow. I can really see again, and then it flutters out. That's all due to the complications of diabetes. 
So inside of my uh, Dr. Ray Victory Foundation, we have three parts. The first part is called the VIC, which means the visually impaired can, meaning that we have we still have abilities and we still have a brain and we still have abilities to do things. So don't cut us off and act like, oh, well, they're blind. They can't do anything. There's so many great things with the technology that exists today that visually impaired people can do. I still read books. I can still produce music. I still can uh, uh, listen to conferences and participate in things. But, yeah, but when you see me on a camera and if I'm holding up myself and I'm upside down, you can have a good laugh because I can't tell. But the second part of the foundation is called the Diabetic Avengers. And basically it goes back to what I was saying, creating a coalition of different folks to find best solutions or best options for everybody to be a part of it and discussing the successes and sometimes the back steps or the, mis, you know, the missteps and how to, how to change that. The third part is, of course, the event angle, which is the diabetic, I mean, the, hip, the health and wellness revolution campaign, which is, as I described earlier, that's where we put everything into action. It's an incredible story. We're going to take a quick break to listen to some more, um, some more Luther music, and then we're going to come back, Dr. Dre, and talk a little bit more about some of the other issues you've been dealing with related to your diabetes, as well as why you have such a phenomenal attitude, which I want to share with all our listeners. But first, because this is our annual Luther tribute to uh, Luther Vandross, we're going to play a song that he covered that was first recorded by Stevie Wonder, Sure, you could guess which one, uh, Dr. Dre. But Rolling Stone said, "Yes, this song, this version, every inch of the song is latent with sexuality, sensuality. Excuse me, it delivers a rare, improved version of the Wonder original. What's the name of that song? Can you think of the name of that song, Dr. Dre? Before we play it, well, let's see. I heard TLC tried to do it, but Luther did it the best. It's called Creep. <laughs> That's right. Here's Creep and courtesy of Sony Music." Cut off Luther. Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. Tonight is our annual tribute to Luther Vandross, and we've been talking to Andre Dr. Dre Brown, the founder of the Dr. Dre Victory Foundation on LinkedIn and the Health and Wellness Revolution. Right now, we're going to bring in our very own Patricia Addie Gentle as we continue the conversation. So, um, hello, Patricia. Welcome to the show. Hello, Max. How are you? I'm great, and Dr. Dre is back. And so um, I wanted to bring you in because, Dr. Dre, you have had several complications related to diabetes, and I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, 
some of the things going on with your legs and your feet. When we talked uh, last earlier this week, we were talking a little bit about some of the conditions you're dealing with with your feet, and I wanted to know uh, that make it really hard for you to to walk. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know our listeners, again, we're trying to tell people about there are several links related to diabetes. If you think it's just a touch of sugar or you think it's borderline diabetes, it's a little deeper than that. And it's really important to start today, not tomorrow, in trying to manage your diabetes in a better way. So um, please share your other experiences with diabetes and some of the complications you've been dealing with. Well, as I explained to you earlier, after I punctured my big toe, I had to have it removed based on complications of diabetes. But what happened is that when they went to do that and my surgeon that he didn't realize that I had such great circulation and he would have thought twice about it as we, you know, grew and we became great friends to understand what was going on with me because I have what you, I, I had, H-A-D had a four-inch ulcer on the bottom of my foot. Now because of my change of diet, it's now down to one and a quarter inch. And what happened is that uh, I realized uh, when I was, uh, going through these changes because there was no physical evidence you couldn't see anything you don't you dismiss a lot of things but when this took place and I had to you know really sit there and say to myself okay I what am I going to do to change this stuff and I need to find out everything I can about this because I'd heard about it uh it, it was like the silent um rumor in a, in a community but everybody didn't didn't know what to do with it it's not the way it is today where things are very upfront and you go to a doctor and they're going to uh, prescribe this for you and prescribe that for you. You have to do other great research for yourself. And luckily, I was friends with uh, the late great Dick Gregory at the time. And when I spoke to him about it, he was working with me many uh, in the '90s, and he wanted me to go with him when he had the Dick Gregory um, Bahamian Shake at the time. And I was just starting out on your own TV raps, and I said, I can't walk away from this show with the way as volatile as this and disappear with you for six weeks and then come back and be able to go back on the air. He said, you'd be the greatest visual experiment for anyone if we did this. And I said, but I can't leave here. I have to stay in New York. So that was my own, again, uh, bad choice, good bad choice, I should say, because if I had left, I would have never been on your own TV raps like that. They would have let me go. But, yeah, I would have been healthier. So sometimes we make a good choice for the bad, for, with a bad result. Simple, simple, simply put, um, before I saw this plant and your diet, issues I had, with your but your having issues with your feet and your ankles are a little fragile, and there's something about that weakened bone. No, that's I think called, it's called Charcot. That, what happens with a lot of diabetics? Your ankles collapse, so it's called Charcot. And I have I had heavy lymphedema in it, but since changing over to this plant-based diet, this plant-based uh, thing, I, where basically, folks, I no meat, zero meat, nothing, zero, none of it. I have big salads. I use mushrooms. I eat uh, beans, healthy beans. I eat um, uh, uh, steamed vegetables, and I'm allowed if I want to. I could eat a few pieces of light pieces of seafood, you know, for a taste if I want. And I uh, put flax seeds on my food and uh, hemp seeds because of all the other properties that it takes. In the last, since I've been doing this for the last ooh, ten. 15, what was about, whoa, 15 weeks? The lymphedema in both of my ankles is gone. The Charcot has reversed itself. And when I say reversed itself, meaning I don't walk with any pain. I have no pain in my body like that anymore. And it comes down to wow. 
diabetes is so well attached to what we actually put in our systems because what we don't understand is that many of the foods that we, we deal with, and that's what we deal with the health and uh, wellness revolution, is that we have to stop. I mean, as fast as people stand online for a chicken sandwich, we need people to stand online for a great nutritious meal. And I understand there's single mothers, single fathers out there with multiple kids. They do three jobs a week or three jobs a day, and the first thing you do is run in and try to get a happy meal. And unfortunately, that happy meal is not a happy meal. It's an unhappy meal. So we have to find better solutions, and you got to be very careful when you say, okay, I'm going to grab this part portion of food and nutrition or this part because you don't know where it's actually coming from. And recently they just found out, I saw a study that they went to um, a, a Whole Foods, and you found out most of the food was being imported from China in these bags. And the way they, they grow things in China is not the way we grow and, and actually uh, uh uh, deal with uh, the food that hits our supermarkets. So just because you go to Whole Foods and spend seven dollars more, and you could be in your bodega and spend spend two dollars less, you know you don't know where the food is coming from. So the first no, thing you're we right. have to do with the wellness revolution. I want to take a minute and ask um, Patricia a question about the charcot. Um, I had never heard that term before. I've read about. I've seen it a little bit on Facebook. Uh, what Dr. Dre was just experiencing. Can you tell us our listeners a little bit more about that, um, Patricia, and what you've seen in your own patient population in Atlanta? Uh, yes, charcoal soot is whenever, well, it's actually caused by inflammation in the vessels, and it causes, and I mean, that's what diabetes does anyway. It puts inflammation in our vessels, um, heart vessels, the eye vessels, when all the vessels become inflamed and are affected in such a way, then it changes circulation, and also neuropathy, the nerve damage that he also had, because he's already aware of that with the ulcer and the things that, um, you know, stepping on the tack and, and sensation not being what it should be. But when you have a combination of those two things, then you get swelling, the edema of the foot and the ankle, and the lessened sensation, it causes the foot to kind of um, collapse, the arches collapse. And also you'll find where uh, in, in advanced cases you will have fractures, little tiny fractures that you may not be aware of. And as it advances, we get what we see, what we call the rocker bottom foot, where the arch is really collapsed and the foot is kind of shaped like the rocker on a rocking chair. And so it's not sitting flat any longer, and it, it's deformed. So I don't know uh, how advanced um, you have experienced, but those are the, the causes, the inflammation, the uh, diabetes, of course, is a part of that. And it can be caused by other things like spinal cord injuries, but in your case, it's the diabetes and the lack of circulation and a combination of neuropathy as well. And, Dr. Dre, this is what I love about you, because all that stuff that Patricia just said would make it hard for me to get out of the bed, and you wake up with such excitement and enthusiasm for life. I mean, you could hear it over uh, the airways right now. How do you how do you stay motivated? Because there's a lot of listeners who have also um, experienced complications like you, and I know they, uh, from day to day, 
their moods may change. And I'd love to hear how you keep yourself so positive and who in your life is really supporting you that you want to give a big shout-out to tonight. Well, I, I give a big blessing to my family that's very supportive of what I do, uh, some of my friends, some of my enemies, some of the people who do know me and some of them who do not. Um, my mission has always been placed from the, the master planner above. He said, I need you to go out there and spread this message of hope, um, opportunity, give the information, and let people decide. Just as the doctor was saying before, like about Charcot, it is reversible. It really is. If you make the changes in your life that you wish to make to develop better better circulation. I guess I spent 12 years researching what to do, and I went through all the different diets and all the different experiments and all the different things. And the, and the funny thing is the people who were charging me large exorbitant amounts of money to detox my body and do all this stuff, and I'm a very big water drinker, so I always I was always that way. Um, they weren't the ones who presented, here's a solution. I met this one, this one um, uh, doctor. Uh, his name is Joe Furman. He wrote a book, Eat to Live which deals with diabetes, and his solutions were, everything is, everybody has the same common solutions, but what he said made it so practical. And I met him, and he said, here, I'm giving you these things. I want you to have this. I want you to work with my, with my um, uh, dressings. Don't use those dressings anymore. I want you to work with this and use his common sense stuff. He said, you're already on the path. You already understand it, so take this. And here, take some of this. I don't want a dime. I just want to see you live. I want to see you live because how you speak about things, how you carry yourself is just so much more dynamic than anyone else I know. Back in the year 2000, I used to be 460 pounds. This day today, I'm under 250 pounds. So why do I get up in a joyous manner? Why? Because every day I'm blessed with the next day. Every hour I'm blessed with the next hour. Even what's going on with us right now with with this virus circulating I have to go with an optimistic point of view. I have to deal with the realistic things that are happening, but I have to say we have to forge forward. This is the tip of an iceberg, but then how do we continue forward and what do we need to do? So that's why I developed the things I did because I took all these experiences, all these understandings, and guess what? I made mistakes because that's what we do as human beings. No one is a perfect path, but don't dismiss people because you say, oh, well, they have this. Oh, well, this is wrong. Oh, 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 I'm going to pity him. Pity me for what? I made the mistake. Now I'm trying to find the best treatments. So the thing is, how can I bring forth this knowledge that I gained? How can I help express this to people like the doctor who was just speaking so we can come up with a great conversation, bring those pieces together, whether you're in Atlanta, whether you're in Compton, uh, California, whether you're in Newcastle, Westbury, whether you're in Italy, whether you're in China, whether you're in Japan. We live in a globe. We really do. We don't live in an isolated world. And that's the one thing this virus is finally teaching everybody. It matters how we treat each other. It matters what we put in our mouths, and that's what the health and wellness revolution about nutrition and fitness is really all about. It's about being able to define what we're putting in. And a great doctor, Dr. B, told me one time, he said, Dr. Dre, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go to a grocery store, and I want you to go down an aisle and pick whatever you want to eat and pull it off the shelf. And I did. I said, yeah, I got this. And he said, now read me the ingredients. So I started reading the ingredients. He said, stop, stop. I said, what do you mean, stop? Put it back. I put it back on the shelf. He said, now I want you to go to that produce section on the other side. And I walked over to the produce section. He said, now, I want you to grab anything in that produce section you want to eat. I said, well, is there anything? Pick something. So I grabbed a handful of kale. 
He said, now read me the ingredients. I said, there's no ingredients on this. It's kale. He said, you can have all of that you want. You can eat any of that. Any of that you want, you can have. I said, well, well, but what do I, I mean, I like, he said, yeah, all that other stuff you're putting in your system is poison. And they're not going to tell you it's poison. And that's why I just told you a story about Whole Foods. That's not something I made up. I watched the report. They said they walked into Whole Foods, and Whole Foods wouldn't let them bring the cameras in to prove when you turn the bag over and it says, oh, this is a GMO, or this is a organic food. And then on, on the bottom, little teeny letters, it says, made in China. And they went back to China to see where all the stuff was made, and they were like, wait a minute. You, we, you, you're putting pesticides and all this stuff on the food. They opened up the bags, and they tested it. It's like, this food is tainted. So how many people all over the country in different pockets think they're going to buy something because they spend an extra buck, don't know where it's coming from? We, 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 our, our systems of, of self-poisoning are so great. They even have things called, oh, this is an impossible burger. This is a meatless this. That's no such a thing. That's just an that's just a, a, a ad topic to get you in to buy something and make you feel comfortable buying it. That's what food is about. It's about comfort. So how do we change those comforts? The first thing we do is change what we're putting in ourselves. And believe me, it's not easy. It's like any other addict. I am a food addict. I, I am a recovering food addict, period. So, again, Dr. Drake, because we're running out of time, but I want to, you know, uh, this is important information. I, I'm going to be so proud to be part of the health and wellness revolution with you and be talking more about good nutrition as well as, like you were saying, a, plant, a plant-based diet and how it could benefit with someone with diabetes affected by or living with diabetes. So um, before we let you go, because it is the annual tribute podcast to Luther Vandross, I have to ask you, if you have a favorite Luther Vandross song and why and why you would choose that song. So what would you say tonight is your favorite Luther Vandross song? Well, tonight, you, you mentioned it from his other album, Give Me the Reason, uh, Stop to Love, because what it does for me, Stop to Love, is let me know I could have done all those things running around, but until I stop to love the ones who helped me, the ones who so most supportive, and the ones who cared for me the most, it's meaningless, you know. It just means so when I hear that song, it gives me such grand energy, and I mean creep of course is it has has been a life creator for many many different reasons, but when you know about one of my favorite songs, it definitely stop to love. Well, I am going to tell you my favorite tonight because Luther performed it on the November twenty second, nineteen eighty six, this episode of Soul Train, and at the BET Walk of Fame in two thousand. Uh, because our next guest is a co-writer on this song. That might be why I like it. That's not true. I love this song. Here's Wait for Love, courtesy of Sony Music. Thanks for being on the show tonight, Dr. Dre. Have a good day. Thank you for having me. Look forward to talking to you again. Peace and blessings and love to your audience. I remember not too long ago I was just a lonely person With a lonely
Welcome back to Demon Bedic's annual tribute to Luther Vandross. That was one of my favorite songs, Wait for Love. And uh, coming up, we've got Luther's longtime music director, co-writer, producer, and arranger. I met him back in 1993 on my very first Luther Vandross tour called Never Let Me Go. Please welcome to the show Nat Adderley, Jr. Hi, Nat. Hi, Max. <laughs> uh, we finally oh got goodness. you on the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here tonight. I, oh. I'm so oh, wow. thrilled. Me too. What was and all that applause I, I just heard? Oh my God! <laughs> Who was that? Yeah, we got a whole got a whole room here. That's okay. they've been dying. They've been waiting for you to come. Um, I've had the good fortune of seeing you uh, fairly recently performing all around New York with the Nat Adley Jr. Trio. And um, But you got something coming up in April. There's a big show at Joe's Pub. Tell everyone a little bit about that before we start talking about your memories of Luther. Ah, the Fandross show. Um, our once-a-year thing. I look forward to it so much uh, every year. We will uh, give a little tribute to to the great Luther Vandross around his birthday. Uh, that uh, it usually is the uh, closest weekend to his birthday, and it is again. And uh, we'll be at Joe's Pub, two shows, doing a bunch of the music. I don't know what to, I don't want to give anything away. We'll have a bunch of singers that uh, have worked with Luther and uh, band members uh, that were uh, with us with Luther. And, uh, and we're going to, do a show incorporating a bunch of stuff. Uh, oh, I don't know what to give away or not give away. <laughs> I don't know what to say other than well, start the show at the top. Yeah, no, I don't think we should give anything away. But it's we've got all we've got a, a great uh, band with former with Luther's former bandmates led by you as well as a lot of Luther's former vocalists that everyone could they'll recognize the names. Uh, they've heard Ivan. Yourself, uh, Pat Lacey, Cindy Mizell, Brenda White King, Alpha Anderson, Tinker Barfield will all be there. It's really great to see everyone get together again, too, and, and be part of that. All right. So, now you've been interviewed a ton of times about Luther. This is your first time on our show. I thought we'd do something a little different. So, we came up with a game. This is our version of True or False. Uh, we're going to be uh-huh. asking you about your history with Luther, and uh, we're calling this Nat or Nonsense. So if it's true, it's a nat. If nat, not that, it's, nat or, it's, or nonsense. Nonsense, yes. So nat or nonsense, you met Luther while attending the same high school, LaGuardia High School in New York City. Is that a nat or nonsense? That is absolute nonsense. <laughs> you didn't that. go to the same you high asking, school? No, we did not. Yeah, you saw that on a, a, on Wikipedia or something. I've taken it. Uh, I've gotten it taken down, and and it keeps reappearing. We we did meet while we were in high school, but I went to music and art, uh, LaGuardia High School of Music and Art, uh, in, in Manhattan, and and Luther went to Taft, uh, in the Bronx. Uh, and how did we you meet? Met, we met. Uh, we I joined a uh, a group that Luther was already in. It was called Listen, My Brother. Uh, we, they met uh, in the basement of the Apollo Theater, led by uh, Peter Long, who was the manager of the Apollo at the time. And there were 10 singers or so, 12 singers and, and a four-piece band. And uh, and we performed around doing very uh, doing songs, uh, the political, you know, uh, uh, we were very socially aware songs. 
that's mm-hmm. our next Natter Nonsense. Natter Nonsense. The group Listen My Brother performed on the very first episode of Sesame Street. That is, uh, so that what are my choices or... again? Nat or Nonsense? That would be a net. Yeah. We did. That's a net. <laughs> you did perform on the very first episode of Sesame Street? Yeah, the very first one. I think so. Yes. You know, I, I mean, yeah. Yes, the very first one. Uh, yes, there were, we did two or three episodes with the first one. Yes, I mean, isn't that true? Don't you know also? Are you really asking me questions that you have no idea uh, what no, the I'm answer is? questions that I know, but a lot of the fans don't know, and this always comes up on Wikipedia as being incorrect. So you guys did perform on that very first show. And we should also tell everyone that Robin Clark a longtime Luther friend and collaborator, as well as Fonzie Thornton, were part of Listen, My Brother, and that all That's happened correct. coming out of the Apollo. Yeah, uh, and Carlos Alomar, Robin's husband. Oh, that's true. That's a, that's another one. All right, so are you ready for another one? We're going to get a little difficult oh. here. Nat or nonsense, oh, oh, really? you and Luther often recorded separately in the studio rather than together. Is that true, Nat or nonsense? You and Luther that's, often recorded separately that, in the studio. Absolutely, that's a net. That's a true. Absolutely. So how would that work? Um, how, well, I'd pre- I'd prepare the basic tracks really uh on the on the and yeah uh uh for the last half of our our twenty two year uh from never too much uh until Luther had the stroke first time um. Uh, good. The last half of that, sure. I would prepare the rhythm tracks for the for the songs that I worked on. Yeah, I would prepare the tracks for him. Without him, uh, I was usually not there when he did the vocals. Now we may be in communication uh, over the phone. I may have some questions for him uh, while I'm doing the rhythm. We will. We would have gotten together before that and agreed on the form and. And uh, key and and other stuff, and uh, then he might call me to ask me about some chord or or something or is this possible or that or whatever you know. But uh, yeah, no, we spent a lot of time uh, not together. People always think I met Beyonce, um, and I never did because because uh, I you know I gave them the the track. And then, um, you know, the day that they were going to meet, uh, the day, I mean, they they had a couple of sessions booked for, for um, for Friday and Saturday night. So, uh, so it was like uh, five to nine or something. So at about seven o'clock on the first night, I called and said, "Hey, okay, I'm going to come on in and and see you guys and uh, and uh, whatever." And Luther says, "We're done." <laughs> she was so great. We we are done. I have. Five and fantastic tracks already, and uh, so anyway, that was uh, was I supposed well, to tell know, these uh, long stories at the end of yeah, every question, or was I supposed to give a quick <laughs> nat, no, no, you're nat or nonsense? Uh, <laughs> you're going to remember that game, I know you, uh, Jane, who's part of the <laughs> one of the uh, moderators for the Luther Fandross Facebook group. She wanted to know to follow up on that nat or nonsense about recording is what kind of came first when you guys were working on a song like Wait for Love? Did Luther come to you with lyrics first? Did you go to him with melody? Did Marcus Miller come in? Uh, How did you guys start to put together a song? 
we, we usually we would uh, give them the track first. Not the not the done track. Give them the uh, idea. Uh, not always complete. Maybe at least at least half done, or three quarters done, or a kind of kind of a whole track that could be changed around. A kind of a whole uh, chords and uh, melody, maybe melody, uh, maybe not. And um, and uh, so yeah, you, usually it started with uh, myself or Marcus, but not every time. Because he would, it, it would sometimes be what you said. He'd have an idea and uh, and not want to finish it or feel stuck or whatever. So yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, okay, I kept that story short. All right. So that now I'm Natterdon. That's for back. Okay, Natterdon. There was so much interested. There was so much interest in Luther that several backers funded his demo recording, including "House Is Not a Home." Um, when he recorded, is that true or false? Did he? Did someone back him, or did? How did he pay for his demo? He paid for it himself. With, well, I remember, yeah. No, I don't remember. You know, he, this is important. I think this is so important that people realize that he put the money up for his own demo, right? I mean, it's kind of incredible that I think people yes, think he, that. Yes, every he did. Well, well, yeah. yeah. Um, the 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 first the first records. Um, even those, did he have the the money? Yeah. Um, uh, even even that even those first uh, uh, records he put out that uh, that people haven't really heard the ones be- before never too much. I'm pretty sure he had uh, whiz money, the whiz money at that point to finance. That and he just had that. I mean, I really don't remember, but but I'm certain never too much. I mean, he had been doing the jingles and stuff. He definitely financed never too much, but I'm sure he did the whole thing. You know, he did those himself. He he uh uh yeah yeah um he knew what he wanted. He sure didn't want to listen to anybody even then. He sure didn't want anybody standing over him telling him what to do. No, he 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 uh he paid for it himself. Absolutely. All right, so Natter Nonsense. Initially, you didn't think recording a version of Superstar was such a good idea. <laughs> oh, because I, cause I tell that story. You know, I, I exaggerate for for, uh, for for stage, for my purposes. But, yeah, no, I didn't. That wasn't my favorite Carpenter's song. No, just like I said, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, was not in, I was not in love with uh, that idea from for him uh for for that record no i didn't get it at first uh that that's true i I don't know what else to say about that when i first put it on and when he said he wanted to do it i did not think it was a great idea that's that's true though i didn't love it maybe uh i it wasn't about being a great idea i just wasn't moved by that song for him at the time when I first heard it. And I loved the Carpenters. Uh, so that's all. <laughs> no, and how about Natter Nonsense? Luther was considering covering Nora Jones's Wish You Didn't, uh, I Don't Know Why I Didn't Call um, during the recording of Dance With My Father. I have no memory of that. That may be true, oh, I, I have no memory. You do? He was looking at did you think of any other covers he, any other songs he he didn't get a chance to cover that he was thinking about? 
Can you think of anything? Uh, um. Oh, and there've been so many. T- also, oh gosh. Oh, I can't think. Like when you um, think of doing Look of Love, wasn't he at one point thinking of doing Look of Love, or is that not true? The Look of Love. I don't remember that either. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that either. You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> You're asking me to remember things. No, I'm not. playing Nat or not nonsense <laughs> with Nat Adderley Jr. Uh, all right, so let's <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the night I fell in love because this is uh, Rolling Stone said this was one of the top hundred albums of the 1980s. This was kind of a different album wow. when you were recording it because you guys traveled far away to do this, and so you weren't really in the New York or LA studios. How, what do you recall about the recording of the night I fell in love? Well, I forgot that was the one. Uh, uh, down, down there. So we were in Montserrat for, uh, for yeah. that. Let me see. That is true because we actually uh, recorded uh, Give Me the Reason for that album as well. Uh, and we didn't like that track the way it came out, and so that song didn't make that album. It came out on the next record. <laughs> or actually between records. Give Me the Reason... Uh, we fi- we figured that one out uh, before we went into the studio for the next record. It just uh, worked out. It was for the film. Uh, they asked him to submit a song oh, for the Ruthless film. Ruthless People. For the Bed Midler film. People. Yes, Ruthless People, yes. So um, so anyway, so uh, I remember that. Uh, I, I was uh, think- thinking about that uh, just uh, right before I, I called in. I, I saw our email. And it just reminded me of something of uh, uh, "Wait for Love." Uh, just uh, you know, so we did record it down there in Montserrat. I'd forgotten about that, but what I do remember vividly is uh, when Luther called me out to Los Angeles. Uh, I was living in Texas still at the time, yes, and he called me out to Los Angeles uh, to recut the piano track. As it turns out, there was a bunch of pedal noise on the track and I was uh, just uh, not not happy about that I mean I, I still when I put that record on when I hear that record I still hear right away in uh, in about the, the uh, eighth with the twelfth bar <laughs> uh, I still remember vividly what was what I played for the original version in Montserrat and what I Left out when I uh, went to went to recut the track uh, in L.A. to to remove that, you know, to get rid of that pedal noise. Uh, so uh, anyway, that's uh, that just speaks to what Luther would uh, would do. I would have been in there covering up the pedal, doing everything I could to to fix that because I kind of enjoyed the original uh, track, but uh, there was no way Luther was going to have that um, uh, that 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 uh, lack of professionalism uh, on his record. <laughs> and uh, so he, he put me out to L.A. I, mean, I, I, that, I love that. I love that. I, I love you talking a little bit about his professionalism because you always want to know what it was like to look work with Luther Vandross. And you've worked with so many different artists, Asher and Simpson, and, you know, like you were mentioning Beyonce. She wasn't in the studio. But, I mean, you've worked with a lot of notable people. How do you compare him now when you look back? Because I, I think he was so professional 
and so dedicated to his shows and so committed to every part of like the live performance and I I think that's true in the recording as well. I'm just wondering like what's, what 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 are some what's something you could share about how what it was like to collaborate with Luther Vandross. Oh, uh, that's a that's what I mean. I think we 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 both um, just wanted it right, uh, you know, all the way. And and Luther was always the one to not worry about the uh, the money. Well, he did worry about the money part, but he wasn't going to sacrifice, uh, you know, uh, uh, the quality for for spending some more money. That that certainly uh, described his uh, shows. You know, from way before uh, you you came around, Max. I mean, I just just his his first shows when he was certainly wasn't able to uh, make any money. You know, uh, but he just was determined that way from way back then. If you come to see a Luther Vandross show, you're gonna see the top quality of, of production values. You know, and and choreography and and lights and and uh, and clothes and uh, just the top uh everything so obviously i mean we we you know obviously that that uh applied to the music and the the singing as well i mean it was very detailed and and uh you know we just won every single note exactly right what can i say now that's i certainly uh and i do think for his uh live shows that he was that way uh to a yeah, I was always really proud to work with him. But we're wrapping up your interview, Nat, and we don't have any more Nat or nonsense. But I want to talk a little bit about how you're keeping the music alive with the Nat Adderley Trio. You've been performing all around uh, the New York area. I know you went to Japan and did some touring with Paulette McWilliams, I believe. So tell everyone what you're up to now, because I, I, it's an important show that people should oh. go check you out. You do a lot of interesting covers. Uh, you're doing some oh, jazz. Okay. You're doing some uh, Ashford and Simpson at these shows. It's awesome. Uh, I did, yes, because I did start out in the business uh, uh, through Ashford and Simpson. But, yes, I do, uh, I'm doing my um, jazz trio and quartet. Uh, all around the place. We've been to uh, Singapore and we do Florida a lot and uh, and California, but 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 basically, uh, yeah, the New York area, uh, like Minton's, uh, the first weekend uh, of April, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Yes, we do. I do a lot of covers, jazz. I'm doing uh, I totally changed direction. I'm doing a jazz show now, but I think my jazz performance uh, appeals to. The uh, the R and B and pop crowd. I certainly do covers of Stevie Wonder and, like you say, Ashford and Simpson, and obviously I do some Luther Vandross uh, every set. Uh, so, so yes, that is what I'm doing now. I'm going to record soon uh, in this new idiom that I've uh, that I've gone back to. I guess I was doing a lot of jazz way before uh, before Never Too Much came out, that uh, which defined. Uh, my life from then on for a long time. Before that, I was doing a lot more jazz, so I'm going, so I'm back to that. And uh, thank you, thank you for asking, Max. Please, uh, please. Well, you've always you, oh, you come and see me I all mean, the I time, <laughs> which I appreciate. Time now, and I, I love coming out to see 
Nat Adderley Jr. with a trio quartet performing. Uh, Nat, I don't know how much time you spend with smartphones or tablets, but it could be affecting your eyes, and we're going to find out more about that when we come back. But first, we're going to play uh-huh. a song, uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about the video, because in this video, um, Luther's family uh, appears in the video. His mother and his sisters are the nosy neighbors, and it's over now video. You should check it out on YouTube. Let's listen to a little bit of that courtesy of Sony Music. Here's It's Over Now. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night, and tonight, uh, Diva Baddick's annual tribute to Luther Vandross. You just heard our interview with Nat Adderley Jr. Make sure you check out Nat's website, Nat Adderley Jr., and find out all the dates he's performing all around the world with an incredible show, his trio and quartet. Plus, he'll be at Vandross 2020. It's happening on April 19th at Joe's Pub, New York City. Tickets are on sale now. Hey, you know, when I was getting ready for this show today, I was all over my smartphone and my tablet, and I had no idea that it could affect my vision. So joining me to talk more about diabetes health and how uh, how important it is for high, eye health in general is my next guest, who's an ardent patient advocate and the chief medical officer at Vision Source. Please welcome to the show Dr. Ali Koshnevis. Hello, doctor. How are you tonight? Hey, good evening. Have you ever been on a show that mixes uh, (laughs) music with education? You know, at the top of the show, we were talking to Dr. Dre, who talked a little bit about vision loss related to diabetes, and we got the 411 on that. But this is a big story about hearing about how in today's world, looking at our smartphones, using our tablets can be affecting our vision. Can you tell us how our our devices may change our vision? Happy to discuss that with you guys, and thanks for having me. Um, I think it's important that we first uh, sort of start out by saying that the devices uh, are most likely having an effect on our children's eyes as they're developing, and that's really at the heart of the concern. Now, there, there, there is enough evidence to say that, yes, even us adults who are spending a ton of time staring at led back devices could have some potential impact on our eyes uh, later in life. But, but really the conversation about digital devices and the impact on the eye uh, happens at a young age. And uh, there's plenty of evidence now. It is, it is solid evidence that shows us that um, because of the fact that our children today spend a ton of time at near the uh, activities and they have a significant draw to their devices. So there's gaming and there's all their homework and everything happens to be on devices. Uh, It's basically keeping the child from going out. So they're spending more time indoors and it's compounding the effect. So both their play and their education happens at near. And so their world is inside and it's on a device and they tend to hold it very close. And so their eyes are developing differently than ours did 
And so we're seeing a rapid increase in nearsightedness. Um, could have a significant impact on their lives. That's incredible that you're seeing it this quickly. I mean, these devices have been around for 10 years, but it's amazing that uh, you've been able to, people have been able to study it and see this change in eyesight. So, um, what el- how, how else is this? Um, what else are the symptoms for parents to know? about uh, their children becoming more nearsighted. Are, are there any symptoms they could be looking for with their children? Absolutely. I, I think the first thing we'd like to do is to make sure that they understand the importance of getting their children's eyes checked because sometimes it is very difficult for a child who doesn't know any better to say, hey, mom or dad, I'm not seeing well. They squint. They look through the corner of their eyes. They get up against the television to see better, and, and they can get by. And by the way, if you're nearsighted, your near vision is good, right? Your distance vision is blurry. Uh, So the child may just go toward reading at near and ignoring distance activities more. But as a general rule, if your child is squinting, if you see them closing an eye, or if you see them um, having to approach before they recognize um, certain facial expressions and what have you, those are some easy ways to pick it up. But that's a it's a pretty gross way of noticing there's a problem. Usually it's more subtle, and we have to catch them at an early age. We really want to see them closer to five or six right before the school years because um, we can then intervene at a time when it's critical versus when the child's already having that school-age myopia age where they're rapidly going through nearsighted changes. And will myopia uh, increase with age, or I mean, if they're starting to have it at five or six, is that is that does it level off? That's a great question. I, you know, we used to say just 20 years ago in school, I, w- I would tell you that you get an increase in school age years, and then maybe another increase in uh, in high school and college when you're really digging in, or if you go to professional school. But it was very much related to those events and those times in your life when you're doing a lot of near work. Today, we're seeing just a uh, significant increase. In fact, uh, there's been a 66% spike in nearsightedness over the last two decades. And the reason is um, because there's really no time where the eyes are developing uh, the way they used to. There's just a rapid increase as we get older. Now, um, obviously, we know that there's a time in our lives where our bodies become a little more rigid and they don't change as much, so you're not going to get as nearsighted as fast. So once again, it's skewed toward the young years. Um, but we see patients continue to get nearsighted into their 30s sometimes, but it gets less prominent as they get older. So, I mean, here's the next question. If I, if I see that my child looks like he, might, he or she might be nearsighted, should I just keep glasses off because that they'll strengthen their eyes naturally, or would wearing glasses actually potentially make their vision worse, weaker? Does it, yeah, and, and I get this question all the time from parents, and it's funny. Uh, you know, there's a group of parents who believe if their child doesn't wear glasses that somehow it'll strengthen itself, and there's a group that believes if they don't wear their glasses, they'll get worse. And, you know, the truth is, and any eye doctor can tell you this, The most important thing is for the child to be able to see clearly with the right prescription, but we have to make behavioral changes. It's not fair for a child to be blurry. 
And there is absolutely no scientific evidence that shows that not wearing glasses will allow you to strengthen your eyes naturally. That's unfortunately a myth. Um, but what we know is that if a child sees clearly, and if we can show them that there's a maximum amount of time that should be doing near work, especially in those early years, like we talked about, where you can get this progressive myopia, this fast-changing myopia, if we can limit their near activities to a, a short couple of hours, we can make sure they're taking frequent breaks every 20 minutes, take some time off. And then if they can get some outdoor time, what we know is at a young age, if you go outside and you get a, a good amount of daylight, about two to four hours of daylight, uh, a day, and that includes all activities. Uh, what we know is that it's somewhat protective of that dangerous progressive nearsightedness, progressive myopia later in life. So at the age of 10 to age of five, six, seven, they should not be coming home and just burying themselves in their digital devices and do the same at school. That's, that's the issue. And how about if they just keep the glasses off? Does that make your sight, eyesight worse just in general, not even for children, but just, you know, because people are always saying, you know, is straining my eyes going to make my eyesight worse? Yeah. So even in adults, well, we always try to make sure that we educate on the science behind it. If you, because vision is kind of complex, there's farsightedness, there's nearsightedness, and then there's something that happens to all of us with wisdom and maturity where we need near glasses. That's a totally different thing called presbyopia. So all of those require a different answer. But I would say this: as a general rule, you really want to have your correction on and you want to have better advice for the work that you do. So if you're a computer professional, we need to make sure you're not straining at the computer by having the right device, a right pair of glasses, the right distance, so that you're not sitting there straining at near. You really need a correct prescription. If you are farsighted, you've got to make sure you have correction on because at near, you're going to strain more than others. And then, of course, after 40-something, we all need near vision correction. And those folks, uh, boy, I've seen everything, everything from nutraceuticals to exercises to try to strengthen the eye. And unfortunately, nature wins. Uh, the lens inside of our eye just doesn't want to allow us to focus up close anymore, and there's not a good exercise to overcome that. Fountain of youth, maybe, but that's about it. Okay, and the final question, um, well, I have two questions. One, is there anything you could do to improve your eyesight? I mean, we've all heard about carrot. <laughs> I wouldn't think that's true, <laughs> well, but I'm know. curious to know. Because, you know, everyone's always looking for some kind of magic pill out there. How, is there any way you can sure. improve your sight outside of what you just said about wearing the right, getting a prescription yeah. and making sure you're, you know, you're having your eyes um, examined? Well, I think the the most important thing to say is that you can really protect your eyesight. That's the most important thing. So, so eating right. So lots of green leafy vegetables. So Popeye wasn't wrong. Even if we're talking about carrots and what have you, this is just nutraceutical nutri uh, nutrients that are important for the eye to protect the back of the eye, the most critical tissue back there. And then of course, keeping a healthy body, believe it or not, the best thing we can do for our eyes is to make sure that our bodies are healthy. If you are suffering from diabetes, hypertension, all the systemic diseases, you're more likely to end up with eye disease. So another great incentive for you to put the cigarette down and, and get in better shape. Um, but that is, that's all I can give you, my friend. But eating right is important for your eye health. 
I, I love carrots, so I'll still be eating carrots. All right, so the final question. Good. We're coming in the spring. The days are getting longer. The sun is out there. You know, everyone's putting on suntan lotion, but is there any is is there any truth to wearing sunglasses and protecting your eyes from the sun, or are you okay to go out with it? We've had a lot of people say that they don't like sunglasses. They're not comfortable. I'm just wondering, with the brightness coming of spring and summer, what should we do? Is there anything we do to protect our eyes, or should we be worried about it? Yeah, and, and honestly, I'll say this without any self-service here, but your eye doctor would always educate you that one of the most significant uh, factors in your long-term eye health is UV, ultraviolet light protection. And if you're not taking steps to protect your eye from UV, sure, you'll be fine on a day-to-day basis, but you'll develop cataracts at a younger age, potentially. You can have macular degeneration happen at a younger age or even happen because of exposure to too much UV. Um, so one of the advice, piece of advice I always give all my patients is, you won't catch me outside without sunglasses, and I'm an eye doctor because I know better. To me, it's not even about how bright it is. It's about how much UV you're getting exposure to. So if your eyewear naturally protects against UV, great. If you're, you have sunglasses that are good quality and are UV protective, great. Uh, at a minimum, wearing a, you know, a hat and, a, and with a bill is very important because you need to block direct sunlight to the eye, but that's not going to give you the same level of protection as a pair of good pair of sun lenses. So uh, that is a take home. If there is any, it's uh, macular generation is a major condition in the United States. And, and certainly that's one way to help prevent um, some, one of the risk factors to macular degeneration. All right. Great advice. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Coming up, we're going to be talking to someone, the star of the Luther Vandross experience, who was discovered on the radio. I wonder if we'll discover him tonight. But first, we're going to hear the title song from Luther Vandross' The Night I Fell in Love album, courtesy of Sony Music. Tickets are on sale right now at Vandross on April 19th. It's Vandross' The Night I Fell in Love here in New York City, April 19th. Two shows. Go to Fandross now and check out all the details while you listen to The Night I Fell in Love, courtesy of Sony Music. It's surely the best thing I ever did that Welcome back to Daddy's Late Night and Diva Beck's annual tribute to Luther Vandross. What would a show be, a tribute to Luther Vandross, without a fan or someone who sounds just like him? Well, guess what? My next guest is singer-songwriter who regularly opens for one of the world's funniest comedian actors, Steve Harvey. Welcome to the show, Danny Clay. Hi, Danny. How are you, Max? Can you hear me? I can. We're uh, great to have you on the podcast tonight. Helping. Thank you for celebrating the memory of Luther Vandross, and thanks for being a part of last year's Vandross celebration at the Sugar Bar. Uh, we certainly enjoyed having you there. I read all about you in preparation for tonight, and I found out you've been singing your whole life. But in 2007, something magical happened that allowed you to share your gift with so many others. Can you tell us all about this incredible journey 
your life is on right now? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. And I, it was an honor to be at Sandroff. It was crazy. Um, so, yeah, in 2007, uh, I had a chance to meet the co-host of the Steve Harvey Morning Show. Um, I was working at the time as a utility locator, just locating lines underground and painting and flagging them. And so I would listen to the Steve Harvey Morning Show on my commute to my work area, and that's like 45 minutes away from my hometown. And I would always just listen to, you know, like I said, the Steve Harvey Morning Show. And, and on Tuesday mornings, they would have this online, on radio, talent show called Other Idol. And people would call in singing whatever songs they wanted to sing. And a lot of times people would call in singing songs by Luther. And they would completely mess the songs up, and it would it would just drive me crazy. And so I, I, I had tried to call for a long time. It didn't work. And so long story short, uh, nephew Tommy from the Steve Harvey Morning Show uh, broke off to do his first solo tour. And Tommy used to open for Luther a few years ago uh, prior to uh, Luther's uh, passing. And so uh, Tommy came to Brunswick, to my hometown, Brunswick, Georgia. And so the radio personality there was a friend of mine, and so she arranged for me to meet Tommy. And I came in after work. I, I still had him at work room. And I told him that I wanted to sing, uh, sing for him so I could get on the Steve Harvey Morning Show. And he was like, well, what do you sing? And I told him I'd like to do a medley of Luther Vandross songs. And he told me straight up, I would prefer you not. I'm like, well, why? He said, because Luther was a friend of mine, and I don't like when people sing his songs and mess them up. And so, uh, and I respect that because that's how I am, too. I'm, I'm kind of guarded about Luther Vandross. And so at that particular time, there was a live jazz band in, that, in the meet-and-greet restaurant that we were at, and they were on intermission. This restaurant wasn't there prior to Tommy coming, and it was torn down right after he left. So I just walked up to the microphone, and I was in there with Tommy and a couple of people, by, you know, ourselves, and so I started singing. And so uh, Tommy came up to me and was standing there for a second, and then he asked me to stop singing. And I, I know I did really good. And so... Tommy, it was like he was going to tell me, don't do that. But he asked me, how much would you charge me to open up my show tonight? I was almost like really like emotional. And so uh, I told him I didn't want nothing. I said, I just want a chance to be heard on the Steve Harvey Morning Show. And so he told me he could arrange for that. And so, yeah, I was discovered uh, in April, April, as a matter of fact, uh, 2007, on the Steve Harvey Morning Show, Other Idol Show. And Steve had me singing for 45 minutes, two days in a row, a cappella. And, so, and, then, uh, and, then it to, and he liked you so much, he brought you on the road, and you started opening for yeah, Steve Harvey yeah, at first date. Yeah, the first show I did with Steve was at the NJ Pack in New Jersey, and I got a rousing standing ovation. And so I thought I was just doing one show, and I, and I thanked him. I was like, man, I, I appreciate you, and I, you know, I always support what you do. And so uh, I was like, I hope to see you around. He was like, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm flying back home tomorrow morning. He said, well, no, but you're going to be my opening act. He said, I'm hiring you to be my opening act. And so he kept me for three years as his opening act until he retired. Yeah, it was amazing. It was absolutely absolutely amazing. We're we're playing the night I fell in love music all night long. There's one song I haven't played because I have done my research on you. And I know it's one of the, your favorite songs that you perform of Luther. And if people want to check you out, they should go to YouTube and check out the Luther Vandross experience because you're performing it. So the songs on his album, The Night I Fell in Love, are Till My Baby Comes Home, The Night I Fell in Love, Creepin', It's Over Now, Wait for Love, My Sensitivity Gets in the Way, 
other side of the world and if only for one night. And I'm thinking, because we're paying tribute to Luther, our listeners would love to hear how much you sound like Luther tonight, perhaps on a Brenda Russell song. I don't know. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I perform if only for one night. Uh, I perform uh, the night I fell in love. Occasionally I do that. I love it. I love that song so much. Until my baby comes home. Yeah, I, I do a lot of songs off of the, the night I fell in love album. That's my absolute favorite one. Absolute favorite. All right, so what would you – I'll give you the mic. Here you go, whatever you want to sing now. Uh, we're going to let we're gonna let uh, all our fans and listeners uh, listen to Danny Clay from the Luther Vandross Experience now. The, the voice that Steve Harvey discovered. Take it away. Wow. Okay. Let, let me hold you tight. If only for one night, let me keep you near to ease away your fear. It would be so nice if only for one night. So, uh, so, so tell us quickly, like when you're studying Luther Vandross and going to perform him, like what stood out that you were trying to capture, like the phrasing, the pitch? I mean, how did what what kind of stood out that you felt like I have to nail this in order to be able to sound like Luther Vandross, like you just did? To be honest with you, I just sing what I hear, and I've always been able to sing a Luther song. Um, uh, uh, when I was like in the seventh grade, he came out with Never Too Much, his first album. And I, I didn't really know that uh, I had a, a, a voice that's similar to his. And, and a cheerleader on our school bus told me, wow, you sound like Luther. Because I was singing along with the radio on, on the school bus. And uh, and because she liked it. And my mother always called me her little Luther when I was a kid. And so I've always loved, I mean, I've absolutely loved the voice of Luther Vandross, and I'm just thankful uh, that I have a voice that's reminiscent because there's, there's never going to be another Luther, and I don't betray myself. Well, we're, thankful, we're thankful too, Danny, and to help us, uh, to, we're so thankful that I'm bringing Patricia Addy Gentle back in. Patricia, are you there? I'm here. And when Patricia huh? comes in, it means she, she said to me earlier, Max, he sounds like Luther, but how much does he know about Luther? So it's time to play our Uh-oh. Luther trivia game tonight. Patricia and I have put together a bunch of questions on diabetes and Luther trivia, and we want to see how much you know about Luther and how much you know about diabetes who can help us raise awareness for diabetes in a fun new way. We're playing our Until My Baby Comes Home trivia, uh, Luther Vandross trivia with Danny Clay tonight and Patricia Addy Gentle. Your first question is, who played the organ on Until My Baby Comes Home? Was it A, Marcus Miller, B, Nat Adderley Jr., C, Billy Preston, or T, D, excuse me, Tinker Barfield? Who played the organ until my baby comes home? You said it was one of your favorite songs off the album. This is one of your favorite albums of all time. You know, I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, 
I think it was Billy Preston. Is he right? If not uh, Billy Preston. <laughs> Brilliant. That is the right answer. Billy Preston yeah. is known yeah. as the fifth Beatle because he was a top session keyboardist in uh, the 1960s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I performed that like song. Richard, uh, Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, and, of course, the Beatles. All right, you're... You're doing well, one for one. I love it. Oh, Danny Clay. All right, we got a diabetes question here. According to the American Heart Association, what is the maximum amount of added sugar a man like yourself should have in one day? Is it A, one teaspoon, B, five teaspoons, C, nine teaspoons, or D, 12 teaspoons? According to the American Heart Association, what is the maximum amount of added sugar a man should have in one day? Maximum amount. And your answer? I one would guess it would be one, one, one teaspoon. teaspoon. One. One teaspoon is your answer? My answer. Really? What is it, Patricia? Well, we we can have a little more, according to the American Heart Association. It's nine. Nine nine, teaspoons? Yeah, nine teaspoons is 36 grams or 150 calories. For women, the number is a little lower, six teaspoons or 100 calories per day. Can I make a confession? Who is that? I pretty much... I'm like I'm like Dracula to to the cross and to sunlight uh, when it comes down to sugar because recently I found out that I'm a type two diabetic and so I run away from sugar I run from it. All right, but uh, the that's general that's American that's is that's consuming. That's yeah, go on, Patricia, and then I have the next question. Okay, I was going to say the general American is consuming an average of seven to seven grams per day. More than three times the recommended amount for women, and this adds up to around 60 pounds of added sugar annually. Mm. Mm. That's 10 pounds wow. in bowling balls. <laughs> wow. Okay. That is and our kids are consuming 81 grams per day, 65 yeah. pounds of added sugar mm. per year. All right, so let's mm. just put that in perspective with your bonus question right now. Okay. All right, so one can of a 12-ounce can of Coca-Cola contains 140 calories from sugar. How many teaspoons of added sugar is that? Is it A, 4 teaspoons, B, 6 teaspoons, C, 8 teaspoons, or D, 10 teaspoons. Keep in mind that 19 spoons of added sugar a day is the maximum amount you should have in, vo- in order to avoid a health complication. So what mm. is your answer? I'm going to say 4 eight teaspoons teaspoon. of added sugar, 6 teaspoons of added sugar, 8 teaspoons of added sugar, or 10 teaspoons of added sugar? It's either t- uh, 6 or 8 teaspoons. Choose one, because Patricia doesn't like to play at this game. She likes an answer. Oh, man. Okay. Well, I was going to do multiple. But anyway, I'm going to 
I'm going to take a stab at it and say eight teaspoons. And the answer, Patricia? That answer is correct, eight teaspoons. The food manufacturers are required to list the amount of added sugars on the nutrition facts label. Recent Mm. analysis found that this labeling could potentially prevent nearly 1 million cases of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes over the next two decades. So listing Mm. the amount of total sugar, total added sugar means that the consumer will no longer have to search through for the many different aliases for added sugar to try and determine how much added sugar a food or a drink contains. Yeah. Is it okay for me to do uh, uh, Coke Zero and Sprite Zero? That's zero sugar, it says. Yeah, neither of those contain any sugar. They have sugar substitutes. All right. It's time for our final question. Who recorded a version of My Sensitivity Gets in the Way in 1986? Was it Jimmy Ruffin, Teddy Riley, Gerald LeVert, or Johnny Gill? For the, for the win, the, all, all the points scored tonight, who recorded that? Can I get the, that, the, the answers again? Let me, let me hear you again. Uh, Jimmy Ruffin, Teddy Riley, Gerald LeVert, or Johnny Gill? Johnny Gill. And Patricia, what are you going to say? Well, that answer is Jimmy Ruffin. He's really? the brother of David Ruffin of the Temptations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know that. I didn't know he did yeah. my sensitivity. That's, that's incredible. Huh. Wait, and Patricia, people be sensitive to uh, people with diabetes like Danny B tend to have sensitive skin. I, I thought I heard something about that. Is that true? That is true. People yeah. with diabetes are more likely to have dry skin, and yeah, that's because high blood sugars or blood glucose yeah. can cause this. Um, there's a problem with hydration when the sugar level is increased, and so the skin has a tendency towards infection and poor circulation. So that contributes to the skin becoming dry and itchy. hmm So if your skin is extremely dry, you can always talk with your doctor, and there are lots of remedies. There are home remedies that talk with your doctor and make sure you have the best remedy for yours. And I have, and I do. Great. All right. Uh, Danny, thank you so much for being a part of tonight's show and helping us celebrate Luther Vandross' raised awareness for diabetes and how to prevent a complication from occurring in your life. Matt, so thank you so much for joining us. It's, yes. a, it's a tremendous honor that you would have me on this show, and I really appreciate it, and I want to tell you thank you. Well, you're so welcome, and I love that you performed. I I, I want to go out on the road with you and Steve Harvey now, so I'm going to start packing my bags after we play our final song. Patricia, 10 years of podcasting. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Dr. Dre. Thank you, Dr. Cornelius, uh, and, of course, 
let's thank Matt Adley Jr. for helping us celebrate the legacy of Luther Vandross. Hey, uh, check out all our podcasts. There's like over 150 now in the Divabetic Vault, all available for free on iTunes, our Blog Talk Radio. Remember, every diva and every dude has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's get happy and healthy together. Join us for Fandross on April 19, 2020 in New York City. We're going to end the show with one of another favorite song off the night I fell in love. This song is called The Other Side of the World, courtesy of Sony Music. Thanks, everybody. Cause none did.